1: this is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another week and another edition of Deep State Radio. I'm here with our group of uh, regulars, uh, all younger than the day they started, including um, uh Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. I think she's in Washington, D.C. How are you, Corey?
0: She is indeed in Washington and exceedingly well. Thank you, David.
1: See, that's why I start with her because she's always bubbly and positive. <laughs> um, just like Rosa Brooks in Alexandria, Virginia, right, Rosa? Bubbly and positive.
2: Uh yeah. Um, yeah, bubbly.
1: Bubbly, bubbly. Well, look, with the review, <laughs> with the reviews your book are getting, you should be bubbly you should
2: be nothing but bubbles
1: yeah exactly i mean i remember not too long ago like two weeks ago and you were like i don't know what about the reviews but they've all be- <laughs> all the ones i've read have been real good
2: no i'm a i'm a happy camper and extremely relieved
1: well all very well <laughs> deserved as we discussed when we talked about your book and um i think also in new york city here with me at the moment david sanger of the new york times hi david
3: David, do I have to be bubbly and happy too?
1: Yes. Um environment. Yeah, sure. Let's see what
3: uh, that, that is not looks your like. Natural,
0: against, that's Corey not has, your natural state, David?
3: Yeah, Corey and Rosa will tell you just how naturally that comes to me.
2: <laughs> yeah, but they have David, as <laughs> to- you know, normally I I try to be, I try to be grim and apocalyptic. So I'm making an exception. <laughs> you can too.
1: Yeah, and it's a little early in the day for you to start drinking. So yeah. <laughs> um Although we don't know when folks are listening to this,
2: so, David, is, you know, I would, David Wait, can I ask a question of David Sanger? I, I know the people listening won't know this, but there's something that either looks like a medieval torture chamber instrument or a <laughs> exercise equipment behind you, David. and I would like to know which it is. It's a little bit of both.
3: <laughs> yeah, now we use it for torture here uh, for sure, um, but 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 occasionally can use it for exercise. <laughs> <laughs>
1: this is um, a fine
2: line. Yeah, that is a, is a very fine
1: line. So, one of the things that uh, I thought we would um uh talk about here and and uh, and we can leave this wherever it goes is in the in in a, in a number of the podcasts that we've done over the course of the past couple of weeks with you folks and with other folks, we are getting and I don't want to say this too loudly, but just here between us, a kind of impression that at some point during 2021, barring some really big unforeseen event, the, the 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 this COVID crisis is going to effectively come to a close. Doesn't mean people are going to stop dying from it. That may go on forever. Doesn't mean that the 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 cost or the consequences for millions and millions of people will uh, evaporate overnight. It's going to take years to do that, but does look like we'll have enough vaccination for everybody in the country, according to the president, by May the 1st. It does look like as many people who want to be vaccinated will be vaccinated by sometime early in the summer. And if you talk to folks at Goldman Sachs or elsewhere on Wall Street, they are telling you that in the third quarter and the fourth quarter of this year, they're expecting the U.S. economy to grow between six and eight percent, which is a astonishingly fast uh, and is fed in part by the size of this um, uh, rescue package that was put through the Congress last week and signed last week. Um, And in fact, will lead the world because most of the world is still going to lag behind it. Um, And that's sort of tied to the question. The the, the Biden administration has had admirable focus on this crisis. They've said, we're going to come in, we have to deal with it, we have to deal with the Uh, the health side of it, we have to deal with the economic side of it. That's what we're about. Uh, When you talk to Tony Blinken or you talk to Jake Sullivan, they'll say, you know, domestic policy drives our foreign policy. But at a certain point, the domestic policy is not going to be quite so demanding. And that's not to say there aren't big issues out there. Um, And international issues have a tendency to creep up on people um, and 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 not to fit into their plans. And uh, I was thinking of this, and this is gonna come as a shock to everybody here, but mostly to David Sanger, as I was reading an article by David Sanger and his colleagues, Julian Barnes and Nicole Perlroth <laughs> in the New York Times entitled White House Ways New Cybersecurity Approach After Failure to Detect Hacks and 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 it was really good article as always and inside the article there was uh, you know a, a sense of the white house trying to find a way to respond to these things and it said if they can prove china was behind one of these big hacks then they're going to go and penalize chinese and i've heard similar things about russia and i thought you know this is exactly how you could get into a kind of unintended escalation in other words we're sort of still early in the cyber era and um we we haven't seen you know cyber response and counter response and so forth spiral up into something big and and maybe that's something that we really ought to anticipate as encroaching on the you know impending happiness so i'm going to turn first to david but i'm interested in what other people think may be looming out there but uh congrats on the article and 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 what do you think is this a kind of thing that could dominate more than than people expect or want
3: um david i believe obviously it could because we don't understand as you point out what escalation looks like in the cyber world you know um i think we've had this discussion before that we're kind of at the equivalent point in cyber that air power was in at the end of world war one where we've had a few skirmishes you know some interesting moments but nobody doubts that the war at world war 1 would have ended the same way in the same time roughly if there hadn't been air power around by world war 2 it was a big strategic weapon and we're right at that transition point right now and i think that the russia hack and the china hack given their breadth the fact that the russians went after a system that was used across the Fortune 500 and in many US uh, government agencies. And the Chinese went after a Microsoft system used by tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands around the world and successfully found zero days, undiscovered flaws into those, that you're getting a picture of what this could look like. And the big debate in the White House this week, since we believe that uh, the attribution of these attacks is coming imminently, next few days to few weeks is um, how hard do you press it? Because we're dealing here with Russia and China, two countries that have lots of escalation capability. To your broader point about post-COVID, I suspect that we are kind of at that moment that we were at 15 years ago where we saw that the Iraq war was ending or that we could imagine we would be winding down our position in it. And we knew the world was going to look different thereafter and we were going to have to deal with a range of different issues. But we weren't quite sure what that was because people were so consumed by Iraq at the time that thinking out even a year ahead was pretty difficult. and. Um, I think a year from now, if all goes well, and we don't have variants that we can't handle, um, people will settle into writing histories of how we responded, what worked and what didn't in the era of COVID. Uh, but the world will have moved on, by and large, or at least the major powers will have. I think there are a lot of countries that will may still be struggling with it. And if the Wall Street prediction is right, we will have had a big boom and my big concern is that that boom is followed by a bust. because as the, even the Chinese have shown, it's hard keeping six or 8% growth going. And it looks like a really fast deceleration when you come out of that. And obviously Congress can't keep spending money the way it is and interest rates can't stay this low forever. Um, But uh, if I had to identify things, cyber for sure, Um, Iran, if you don't get the deal back together. um, We haven't yet seen the North Koreans greeting to to the Biden administration. And China writ large, which is to say that we don't have a whole lot of time left to come up with competitive ways to go deal with China technologically and, and their gains. And I think those are the things that could certainly come up and bite us. And then it's usually one you haven't predicted but which when you go back you discover Corey wrote about years ago.
1: So the Mexican-American War.
3: Uh, that that would be that would be a good one and you know I want to say that your podcasts on that were really terrific and uh, yeah.
1: thank you. Not many people actually went to Guadalupe Hidalgo. Anyway, <laughs> um Corey, you know, same, same. You know, sort of general question. Picking up on that, I would note that with regard to David's comment on China, it's very interesting that this administration has put Asia Pacific as high up as it has. The meetings with the Quad as high up as they have. We now have Secretary um, Blinken and Secretary Austin heading off to Asia, um, and we have a U.S.-China dialogue which is edgy right at the moment. So maybe that's where it is. Um, What do you think?
0: Yes. So I think David did a good job outlining the country by country challenges. Um, And I don't disagree with those. I think there are three kind of overarching problems with the Biden approach to national security that it's a little bit early to see right now, but I think these tensions are going to come into brighter focus as the pandemic recedes. And the first is that their economic approach is inconsistent with their foreign policy approach. That is the focus on uh, on made-in-America products, uh, their, their, the way that they are privileging American manufacturing, not acknowledging that it wasn't NAFTA or uh, China's entry into the WTO that uh, collapsed manufacturing in the United States. It was the very kind of innovation that they're celebrating in the American economy, namely technological substitution um, that uh, that dramatically reduced manufacturing jobs in the American economy. I think they haven't made the connection, although I'm, I'm very much heartened by the Quad proposal uh, last Friday for Japanese and American funding of manufacturing vaccine COVID vaccines in India and a distribution network for them to countries that, as you rightly pointed out, David, are not going to be vaccinated, even if the US uh, continues, thankfully, to ramp up our vaccination um, and create herd immunity by the summer. Uh, And the other thing, so, so the problem that the Quad has attenuated somewhat is that the reliance on allies, especially for managing China, Is going to come into conflict with some of the, you know, Blinken focus on reconnecting American foreign policy to the middle class, because you're going to have to make compromises uh, about a lot of the made in America and a lot of their uh, kind of mercantilist economic approach. And I haven't yet seen enough signs that make me comfortable that that's not gonna get in the way of the alliance solidarity they want. Just to take one example, um, the continued pressure on Nord Stream energy pipeline between Russia and Germany. The Biden administration is pressing that very hard uh, and uh, that's gonna get in the way of the kind of relationship they wanna have with Germany. And the third thing, and this is my biggest concern, Um, that I think will become clear in the summer as you begin to have budgetary choices. Um, The passback for the FY22 defense budget uh, is, by the estimate of my AEI colleague Mackenzie Eaglin, who's the best in the business at this, a 3% real cut in defense spending. And it looks to me like the Biden administration is trying to keep the military elements of Trump administration national security strategy without funding them, as the Trump administration also did not in its last two years. And there's a big yawning gap opening of unacknowledged risk in execution of our strategy.
1: Hmm. Uh, Rosa, what do what do you, what do you think happens as we enter the post COVID world environment?
2: Well, I'll tell you what I worry will happen. I worry that we'll promptly forget all of the painful realities we've been going through with regard to COVID, and not actually internalize any of the lessons. Um, I, which is to say, I, I agree with everything that David and Corey have have said in terms of highlighting for instance, country-specific challenges, but I also think that that we, we, what COVID should have taught us is that we are and will remain very vulnerable to uh, new viruses, et cetera, um, and that our public health system, both national and globally, is completely inadequate to the challenge, and we have to do something to fix it. I, I fear that what, what will actually happen is that after a lot of hand-wringing about that, um, we will go right back to oh good we 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 got rid of COVID or we got we we beat it back down to a manageable level and now we can move on to uh, sort of status quo move back to status quo ante and we don't actually have to grapple with with fixing the the structural problems so I guess I mean, and, and and to me that actually relates very strongly to a range of other the other global challenges that don't have to do with specific. Relationship, bilateral relationships, or relationships between the U.S. and specific groups of other states, but that really do have to do more with managing global challenges. Uh, pandemic disease being only one, um, you know, you could argue that cyber, in some ways, is another. Uh, certainly, climate change is is another. Uh, refugee flow, uh, managing different types of extremism, is another. And all of those challenges are ones that that get to the importance of having effective global systems for dealing with conflict, dealing with disease, dealing with migration, et cetera, and all of those are areas where it's just incredibly difficult. You know, it's just it's just it's easy to say, and I say it all the time. You know, we need better global governance mechanisms, blah blah blah, and we all say that. It's incredibly hard to do, and I think that you know, it took a cataclysm of of unprecedented global proportions, e.g. the Second World War and the Holocaust to sort of shock humanity into creating the the UN charter system that served us, you know, pretty well for decades, but clearly is no longer anything close to adequate to the types of challenges we're facing. And in some ways, I I worry that we are not quite scared enough. And this is obviously not an argument for, you know, having things be worse. Um, thank goodness things look like they're going to get better on the COVID front, but, but I, do, I do worry in a sense that we we haven't yet been frightened enough to do the kind of incredibly difficult work of institutional thinking and design that we really need to do uh, to address these, these very complicated and very global challenges.
3: You know, David, uh, Rosa made the point about global governance and she's absolutely right, but I'd settle right now just for some decent global surveillance, right? I mean, we've been taken by surprise by uh, the pandemic in part because the Chinese weren't being honest with themselves and certainly with us. We've been taken by surprise by- David,
2: everything in China is fine.
3: Oh, just just
2: fine. Yes, just fine. (laughs) And we've
3: been uh, taken by surprise by two massive hacks, which the NSA, the FBI, and the Department of Homeland Security never saw. We only caught them because private industry caught them. And what that tells you is we've got a much more networked world, whether it's viruses or uh, bad code flying around, and we have not yet developed the networks to detect what we need to see coming.
1: It's interesting. And I thought one of the good points in your article was the discussion of how do you develop um, private sector, public sector surveillance, you know, where a private sector can go to a public repository and say, here's something we see and the, the, the public sector can respond to that, which has been, you know, people have been talking about this kind of thing for a long time, but it's kind of encouraging. I, I have to admit that the administration is giving it the thought that it's giving it.
3: That, that's right. You know, we've had private elements to it. There's um, the, the, the um, um, coders uh, among your uh, among the listeners of Deep State Radio will go to something called Virus Total, which is, you know, a place where these are, are posted. Um, GitHub, which is, believe it or not, owned by Microsoft, is a place to which these things are posted. But what the story was getting at was that the difficulty is that many of the companies don't wanna be seen as providers of data to, um, the, to the NSA because they've gotta go sell their goods around the world. And so when Google shows up in um, you know, Eastern Europe or Southeast Asia, they don't wanna to be told, well, is everything you learn about my network going directly to US intelligence? And since these companies are global, um that's a really hard place to be. So there's gonna be nothing easy about this.
1: Well, you know, I think that picks up on Rosa's point, Corey. And you know, when we when we talk about, well, what's this era gonna look like? And uh uh you know, what what do we have to worry about? You know, there's a natural tendency to say, well, there's this conflict or that conflict or this thing could cause a problem. But the 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 reality is what it may be is a period of frustrations, you know, I think as I look around the world, you know, you have a desire to do an Iran deal, but the question is, you know, how's that going to happen? And the Iranians haven't really been very responsive to the U S there's been outreach to North Korea. The North Koreans have reportedly not been responsive in, in, in that regard. You know, we want to rebuild alliances with the Europeans, but, um, uh, there's you know Nord Stream and there's other issues and change of leadership in Germany coming, and there's wariness among the Europeans to determine whether this uh, Biden sanity is a brief uh, period of clarity for the U.S. before we descend further um, into a sort of Trump-like period of national dementia, or whether it's something else. And so what it could be is that this period it just turns out to be a lot harder for the U- us to regain its footing in the places it it's, it wants to. Do you do you agree with that?
0: No, I don't think I do. Um it it's entirely plausible and that's probably the smart money bet, but i i would actually bet against it myself because there is uh, so much desire for preservation of an international order that's not only incredibly advantageous to the prosperity and security of the United States, but much more advantageous to the prosperity and security of most other powers in the order than the alternative they can see looming on the horizon, alternatives, whether that is a more chaotic international order that is therefore more dangerous or whether it's a Chinese dominated international order And so I think there's an enormous reservoir of goodwill for countries wanting to help the Biden administration succeed at re-establishing the United States as something um, uh, as a country that has, even if it doesn't always perfectly honor them, has values that uh, shape its domestic discourse and policy and also its international discourse and policy. I agree that there's an enormous amount of worry that um, Donald Trump is just the leading edge of a kind of vicious, unprincipled American foreign policy. Uh, but I think the ease with which the Biden administration and the grace with which they are making smart initial moves uh, will create momentum for even more cooperation and facilitation by others. So I do actually think uh, it's likely American um, hegemony is likely to be substantially reinforced coming out of the pandemic, I guess the last thing I'd say is that, you know, the United States isn't good at having it right. We're good at getting it right. And I think what you see from the terrible mismanagement of most of the first year of the pandemic, and states having to figure out everything for themselves, no national policy, bad national policy where it existed, um, is the now that we begin to get it right, uh, that will be as memorable as what we did wrong.
1: Well, you'd come by that tiara of optimism, honestly, and it looks like it's going to reside <laughs> in 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 the safe that it's in at the uh, AEI it's for a long time to come. Um, Was Corey Winston Churchill's speechwriter when he did the? Americans will do the right thing after (laughs) all of the other natural alternatives.
0: (laughs) I do believe it's true. (laughs) Um,
1: Yeah, it's the question is how long it takes us to come to the right alternatives. Um, Rosa, you know. And
0: whether our adversaries will give us the time to make that adaptation. And those adversaries aren't just states. They are also climate and other big pandemic challenges.
1: Right. Well, I was actually kind of sort of going to get to that, um, Rosa, because, you know, one of the things I, I think we talked about it uh, briefly in our show last week was, for example, with regard to the quad, um, the 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 big other power in the quad and uh, size wise is India. And India is drifting further and further away from being a democracy at a at a fairly rapid pace. And in fact, you know, the United States has managed to neglect having much of a policy towards the global south uh, for a long time to come, but it could well be that you know COVID recovery is a two-speed thing and that developed countries go at one speed, but Africa and Latin America and other places that don't get the vaccine go at another speed, and that exacerbates tensions. There's certainly a number of worrisome things going on in Africa and Latin America. Are those parts of the world just going to be out of mind again, or do you think that these kind of problems in these parts of the world may may also loom larger than they have.
2: Well, we'll see. I mean, you know every administration, well, not everyone, the Trump administration's the exception to all rules, I suppose. But uh, you know, the Biden administration, like most prior administrations, came in promising that the relative neglect of the global south would be would be remedied. Uh, that the U.S. would focus much more on, on our, this, the Southern Hemisphere uh, in terms of Latin America and South America, that uh, also would focus on India, on Australia, on, on, on all over the global South. I hope Africa, I hope that that is true, but the lesson, I mean, again, in keeping with my slightly gloomy comments earlier about lessons that we tend never to really learn in a serious way, you know my, my fear is that the pattern historically has been that that kind of pledge uh, turns out to be very hard to keep. I I won't I won't go so far as to say that they're made hypocritically, but simply that it it has proven difficult for prior administrations to do more than make rhetorical commitments to centering the global South much more in 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 global affairs or US foreign policy. So I'm not actually terribly optimistic that that will change in meaningful ways it should, um, just as we should have better global public health surveillance and cyber surveillance and so forth, You know, just as we should be having an intensive focus on more effective and more equitable forms of global governance and, and problem management. Um, but I, I have a bad feeling that it probably won't. <laughs>
1: um you know david uh, the, both tony blinken and and jake as i mentioned earlier sullivan have talked a lot about the domestic policy driving foreign policy and and of course in you know it's a case of you know be careful what you wish for uh, I, I think of two examples you may think of some others one is it seems like this administration is going to go after tech company um, uh, giants uh, in a a fairly aggressive way and might even uh, lead into hearings, potentially breaking some of them up, uh, studying monopoly, and so forth, which could have global consequences in terms of US leadership in this regard, um, for better or for worse, or for inspiring global response in this. And that's significant in the cyber world, and of course, the president has really wanted to open up a a, a more humanitarian immigration policy. And apparently fairly significant number of immigrants have taken that to mean, now's the time to come visit the US, which is creating sort of the first looming uh, crisis of this administration of, 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 if not of its own making, certainly that it contributed to. at the border, where we now have thousands of people who are trying to get into the country that we've said we are going to treat better, but you know, how do you how do you how do you manage all of that? Do you see some of these issues, which are domestic and in, in at least some portion of them, uh, shaping this agenda too?
3: I, I certainly do, and look, I I commend the idea of trying to reconnect domestic interest with foreign policy. Because I think, you know, if you listened to Tony Blinken when he was Deputy Secretary of State or when he was National Security Advisor, and, and he and, and Jake Sullivan both were at various times to Vice President Biden, they would talk about foreign policy goals, but rarely in the terms that you just described that they've they been doing in recent times. They will not go out and give a foreign policy speech today without talking about how you have to root it in the interests of ordinary Americans. And that's because the Democrats basically lost their base in foreign policy with a sense that um, much of what we were doing didn't have much relevance to their lives, or if it did, particularly in the area of trade and so forth, it was running against personal interests. I think their analysis is, that's part of how Donald Trump got elected in 2016. And I think he's right. They're right. That is how he got elected. That doesn't necessarily mean, though, that your domestic um, interests um, always have to be the guiding run when you are trying to come up with a foreign policy in which you are the global leader. And um, in some areas, I think Biden will be able to make this work. Climate is one of them. As he talks about its possibilities as a job creator, not a job eliminator. Technology is another one of them when he talks about bringing supply chains home and making sure we're not dependent on China and others uh, for critical technology. And I think that's a way of connecting them. Um, The Iran nuclear deal, it's going to be pretty difficult to make any better case except the generalized one that We all have an interest in the world and not seeing proliferation, particularly in uh, the Middle East. So um, I think this is going to be a tricky, tricky bit of walking for them to go do. On the question of breaking up the tech companies, here you're going to run between um, the progressive side of of the party, which believes that the rise of these BMS in the economy has basically been um, bad for workers, bad for the economy, and bad when you're trying to go track down disinformation. And the reality that if you break them up, you may actually be helping the Chinese along who are identifying national champions like Huawei with the scale across the world to go install Chinese technology. And I think the big collision is going to come between our domestic impulse to break them up and the international recognition that if you're going to take on some of China's national champions, you better have a few of your own.
1: Yeah, well, that was one of the, the looming issues. Um, I think a lot of us uh, were drawn to foreign policy because it didn't... Uh, didn't get bogged down in politics in the United States, which often seems um, uh, kind of gross. But, uh, you know, Corey, I think we also have to acknowledge that, you know, a lot of what presidents and administrations do is reactive to the political environment. And I think, you know, what ha- gets done on foreign policy ends up being that way a- as well. And as I've listened to this conversation, I see a kind of emerging potential critique that that, that might be relevant next year's midterm elections, where even though we're only 52 days into this, it might be something like where under funding uh, defense, they've had a problem on the border, they haven't been able to deliver on big promises with a new deal with Iran. Um, They haven't, you know, made the kind of international progress that Trump made on, you know, North Korea. Um, The Russians are playing footsie with the Europeans on Nord Stream. Uh, This is not a strong administration. You think that's the likely emerging critique or a likely emerging critique? And how might such a critique, you know, influence, um, uh, you know, sort of policy development on a defensive way?
0: Uh, I would be delighted to see that be the emerging critique of the Biden administration instead of the kind of culture war, pregnant women shouldn't have comfortable uniforms in the military, ridiculousness that is currently obsessing uh, Republicans on Capitol Hill, because a serious foreign policy critique like the one you just mentioned, I think would still struggle to get traction if the Biden administration succeeds at their top priorities, which are bringing the, bringing the pandemic under control, uh, expanding the perimeter of security for the United States by international cooperation on a, on a whole host of important problems and getting the economy getting those 10 million Americans who are still not in the labor force since the start that left the labor force since the start of the pandemic back to work. Um, And I'd put in a plea for infrastructure week finally coming. I think if they do those things, the specific concerns about Iran, North Korea, China, um, will even in the powerful substantive way you framed it, rather than the ridiculous culture war nonsense that um, seems to be obsessing my fellow Republicans at the moment. Even in its best term, that will be a hard blow to land if the Biden administration does, executes on its priorities anywhere near as well as they appear to be doing right now
1: well that's an interesting uh take by the way if you if you want to see the author of the um nonsense about women's uniforms get obliterated on national television um do encourage you to go look at what john oliver did last night on last week tonight where he spent 24 minutes um eviscerating tucker carlson um uh as as, as listeners know here i'm biased because my daughter is a writer for the show but uh
0: May I add one point to that, please, David?
1: Sure. About my daughter?
0: No. Although, when did you start working for
3: Tucker Carlson? I missed that.
1: No, no, no. John, <laughs> Yeah, that would never happen. You know her, and that would never happen in this family. She's, she is a very happy writer for John Oliver. Go on.
0: I was going to make a point about, um, you know, you guys have heard me say before that, Uh, Mike Flynn may turn out to be good for civil military relations in the United States by reminding Americans who have little experience with our military that, uh, that it is a microcosm of our society writ large. So there are crazy people in our military, just as there are in our country. And I think Tucker Carlson's ridiculous attack on the contribution and professionalism of American women in our military has had the salutary effect of the institution's leaders um, very forthrightly defending the professionalism and the contributions of American military and the importance of diversity in our teams. And that You know, that's certainly not what he intended and certainly not what the people like Senator Cruz who are picking it up and running with it uh, intend. But it looks to me that especially for women in the military, it mattered a lot to them that the leadership planted their flag um, and sided with building trust with women in the military rather than allowing our military to be used as a political cudgel
1: well, as those of you who've read the extremely well-reviewed book Tangled Up in Blue by Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center, uh, you know she is an outspoken advocate for um, better fitting tactical gear, including uh, uh, you know bulletproof vests and that kind of thing, um, uh, the, which extends from the military to police forces. But, uh, and feel free to expand on that all you want, Rosa, but I, I was just, Wondering, you know, as often happens, as I was listening to all of this uh, discussion about these elevated foreign policy and national security issues, um, whether it's possible any of them actually rise to the level of political relevance next year.
2: Uh, hard question. I think it depends what else is happening. You know, I think I think that culture war issues are related to the amount of sort of free floating economic and, and physical anxiety people feel. And in a sense, obviously we all have ample reason to feel an extra dose of, of anxiety uh, as a result of the last year and the pandemic. And, and I do honestly think that that makes us all a little bit crazier. Um, I think that if the pandemic eases, if the economy is good, the salience of all of these culture war issues will diminish in, in electoral terms um, pretty dramatically, because frankly, people will have better things to do. You know, when you're sitting around at home panicking about whether you're going to get COVID and become very, very ill or or die and what's going to happen to your job, uh, you know, that these culture war issues can can feel to people like a like a distraction. And we attach all of our all of our anxieties to things like that. So so You know, I I sincerely hope that we have better and more important and more interesting things to worry about and happier things to think about uh, by the time the next elections come along.
1: I hope so. I hope so, too. And by the way, Corey, I I think you're going to get your wish on infrastructure, whether whether the, the Republicans, you know, join on board and you end up with something that's got 60 votes or the Democrats ultimately decide to do a chunk of it via reconciliation, I don't know. But it sure seems likely that between now and September, something large is gonna happen in that regard. Um, The highway bill being up uh, in September, so there is a kind of a clock.
3: I I think the issue, David, is gonna be, um, does that keep that growth that you were talking about at the beginning of the show going? And what happens when we get off the drug of government spending on first COVID and then infrastructure? Because obviously we're doing something that is not sustainable. That doesn't mean we're not, it's not right. I mean, COVID you had to go do, but it was $5 trillion, which in adjusted dollars is more than we spent on World War II. And uh, the infrastructure is wildly out of date and we could keep doing that for a long time. But... um, You know sooner or later there will be a a price to pay here and no one really wants to go discuss that and i can understand under the current circumstances why we wouldn't want to but
1: well i I would i would argue that that's theoretically um true uh but uh first of all the infrastructure bill to the extent to which it takes um place and the estimates for it are between two and four trillion dollars over the course of 10 years Um, will certainly be offset to some degree by um, some kind of revenue measure. Uh, And and secondly, infrastructure, of course, is investment, which bears returns for many decades. And as Nancy Pelosi tends to point out, not investing in your infrastructure has a very high cost as well, uh, particularly in terms of issues like the ones you mentioned, global competitiveness. As far as the rest of it goes, if it brings the economy back um, uh, you know some of it's going to get paid for by productivity growth and and other kinds of things
3: and, and plain old tax revenue from it you know, right. that, that, that,
1: that's, so so you know we 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 we'll just we'll just have to see i think we were in cases where um, under underfunding might have produced more damage than overfunding but that's a political the
3: point other of. argument that i think that biden can make is you know Donald Trump himself favored the infrastructure training he just he just couldn't bring himself to focus on infrastructure week past any monday because
1: well, there was always a scandal get out
3: there and do what he was tweeting about and talking about the culture wars that that Rosa was just uh, discussing uh, and you know Biden might be able to sell this by finally saying he's delivering on Donald Trump's promise
1: which you know we 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 shall see. We've certainly nobody's been delivering. I don't know it's, it's it's in some respects it's delivering on Dwight Eisenhower's promise, and nobody's yeah. delivered on it since um, uh, since then. Uh, but uh, that is uh, that I think is going to be the next big act in this this uh, um, political drama here. We will follow it. We will follow all of these things. Um, as we do on the various podcasts we do each week. um, And as we do on this, our anchor podcast every Monday, uh, we encourage you to go and to listen for that. Go to the DSRnetwork.com, see what's upcoming, uh, sign up, be a member, help support uh, the work that we're doing in this area. And uh, join us again later in the week and in ensuing weeks as we do just that. Uh, In the interim, thank you to David. Thank you to uh, Corey. Thank you to Rosa. Thanks to all of you for listening and uh, stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.